I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 6. Made it through chapter 5, and now we're in chapter 6, where we will see some very difficult sayings of Jesus and how people respond to them eventually. But the chapter begins with, uh, like chapter 5 began with, a great miracle uh, that many people saw. And then we're going to start to see Jesus teach on what it means and how people respond to that. So before we read the first 15 verses of John chapter 6, I invite you to pray with me. Our Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open it to our eyes, that the things we hear, we would understand, that the things we see, we would really see and really perceive down to the depths of our souls. And so perform a miracle in each of us that none of us would leave here the same, but we'd all leave here drawn to you, seeing your glory, seeing how great you are, and seeing how we are called to respond to that greatness. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. John chapter 6, of verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thus for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved brothers and sisters of hope and everyone with us here listening, this uh, miracle in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 is, uh, uh, with the exception of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's no surprise because 20,000 people, there were 5,000 men, women and children included, there were about 20,000 people or so, give or take, uh, saw this. <laughs> And feeding 20,000 people is no small miracle. So it's not surprising that every gospel uh, writer included this by the Holy Spirit uh, in their accounts. And one of the things that we're coming to grips with or have to come to grips with in looking at this passage is that Jesus is the only one who could feed hungry people. He's the only one who can feed hungry souls. He's the only one who can pull this off because he leans on his disciples a little bit, and we'll notice that, and they come up with a bunch of, um, not really sure, here's an idea, nothing works. But Jesus knows exactly what he's gonna do, and then he does it. 
And he's teaching the disciples. He's teaching everybody in the crowd. He's teaching us that when it comes to satisfying souls and feeding people and giving them something that they need, he's the only one who can do just that. And I want us to notice as we walk through as well that you know, many people view the Christian life as a life of triumph to triumph. Everything is successful. Everything is perfect and good and nothing ever goes wrong. And the only people who really accomplish much are the strong and mighty. But what we discover all throughout Scripture and in this passage as well is that God uses the weakness of his people to do mighty things because it was the disciples who had almost no answers to the conundrum and the difficulty that Jesus used to feed these people. So they were, they were used in their weakness to be a means of feeding these people. We're gonna discover that as well. So no fancy outline today, but I'd like to, I've got some points. The first one is this, the reality check of hunger. So verses one through five, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he knew what he would do. So the reality check of hunger or the reality test of hunger. So just in looking at the verses after this, so the space between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six is maybe six months. Some estimated as much as 12 months. We go from one feast of the Jews, um, depending on which feast it was, maybe this is six months later, maybe 12 months later. Um, in any case, Jesus is no longer in Jerusalem like he was at the beginning of John five. He's now in Galilee doing his Galilean ministry. And this ministry in Galilee was so intense that Mark in his feeding of the 5,000 version records this. Jesus said to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Mark gives us a detail. When they got into the boat and went away, Jesus is heading them to a desolate place. We're, we're going to the middle of nowhere, not the edge of nowhere where you're close to somewhere. We're going to nowhere to a desolate place uh, to the middle of it. So they hopped in the boat, they went across the sea, and as they got on shore, there's different accounts of this, but as they got on shore, word started spreading, the people had noticed, and the crowd started assembling. So Jesus and his disciples went up the mountain, they went up on a hill to get away, but the crowds started coming in. So things are going really well for the disciples, it looked like they had a break, and all of a sudden things are not going so well anymore. There's tons of people they didn't come because they believed in Jesus, which will be uh, evident by the end of chapter six, but they came because they saw the signs, like it says, that Jesus did on the sick. He was healing so many people. That's why this massive crowd had gathered. Some people came just to see the signs and be awed. Some people came because they were sick and they wanted to be healed. Some people came because they were bringing the sick and they wanted their sick to be healed. In any case, this crowd shows up and there is no rest. And now the disciples have a conundrum. 20,000 people, double the size of Pella, take all of us, put us in an open field somewhere. You can do the math and you can imagine the sight. This is a ton of folks sitting around. This is a lot of people. And Jesus leans over to Philip and gives him a test. Where are we to buy bread 
so that these people may eat. Now you can see smoke <laughs> coming out all the disciples' heads, including Philip's, maybe especially Philip's. All of a sudden the wheels are spinning. <laughs> Wait a minute, this is your ministry, Lord. John the Baptist had a ministry. Your ministry has exceeded his now. John the Baptist is over and done with now. This is your ministry. What, what does this have to do with us? But Jesus leans on them and we're told it was to test him. He's starting to test their faith. And the proper response would have been something along the lines of, Lord, we've seen you do amazing things. You healed, you healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We've seen you change water into wine. By this time, Jesus has likely done so many miracles that John says they can't all be recorded, all these signs. All the books in the world can contain them. So he'd done enough to probably at least fill one volume of books and, and none of the disciples got it. They just start thinking in earthly terms. Jesus was testing their faith and they weren't doing well with this test at all. It'd be similar to imagine if you were standing by the president of the United States right before his State of the Union address. And just before he was called to deliver it, he leans over to you and says, what are you gonna say during the State of the Union address? What, what do you have to say? What's your speech gonna be about? And you stand there with egg all over your face in the spotlight thinking, I didn't come here to give a State of the Union address. This is your speech. <laughs> he says, uh-uh, it's your speech. But he's testing you. Jesus is doing the same with his disciples, putting them on the spot and seeing what they do. And I wanna mention just briefly a couple things. God's tests for us often come entirely unexpected. None of the disciples anticipated this. Philip didn't walk up that mountain with the Lord to take a lunch break or to take a day break thinking, yeah, Jesus is gonna test me. But all the crowd showed up and Jesus tested him. Uh, Abram probably didn't wake up one morning saying, yeah, God's gonna go ask me to sacrifice my son. It, out of the blue, it's an unexpected test. When God gave uh, Paul the thorn so that he wouldn't become proud, I, I don't think there was a warning. The thorn shows up after he saw the visions and now he's got a test. How are you gonna handle yourself? How are you gonna work through this? What's your response gonna be to the test? In fact, tests are almost always surprises, so much so that Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 can say, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that language, do not be surprised, the verb surprise has to do with to cause a strong psychological reaction through induction of something new or strange. Can you think of something stranger for Philip than to be standing in front of 20,000 people because your rabbi, your teacher, your Messiah has done amazing things. You're kind of a background worker. <laughs> and all of a sudden he looks at you, the stagehand, and says, huh, what kind of show are you gonna put on next? How are you gonna feed all these people? That's a surprise. That's a test that is a total surprise. And beloved, that's the, really the nature of tests. And I just wanna mention this, when tests come our way, they will almost always surprise us so they won't be much of a test, so expect them. Uh, the second thing I want us to notice about this test is that it always comes with a divine purpose. Verse five, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is bringing this test upon Philip and the disciples. He's doing it, God's in charge of it. All the tests which come our way are from the Lord. He's testing us. He's not tempting, that's a different story, but he's testing. And when we are tested, beloved, God is, God is seeing what we will do with that test and we need to realize that the tests are from him. And then third and final on this point is the tests often involve how to help people in need. 
Look, we're living in a world that is filled with needy, hungry, starving, spiritually people. We're living in a world that's just like that. If you read the newspapers, if you read uh, news media at all, if you go out in your neighborhoods, beloved, if you look at uh, counseling centers, if you go anywhere in the world and you go to hospitals, you go just tons of places, what do we find? People are in need. They have great needs. And here standing in front of Philip is 20,000 people that need what? They need to eat. They've been going all day long. They've been following Jesus. They're overwhelmed with Jesus. And they've neglected themselves. That Physically, they're just done. And so in the world that we go out into, we're going to see the same thing. People that are following after other gods for wrong reasons are following after God for all the wrong reasons as well. The true God for all the wrong reasons. And they find themselves physically destroyed, worn out, needy, and in need of help in need of guidance. The disciples don't know what to do, but Jesus knows exactly what to do. And he notices this. And in fact, in Mark chapter six, we're told when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees this great crowd of people. And instead of saying, why didn't you bring lunch? You know how many people we got to heal here. You know how long my teaching is and how good it is. Why didn't you bring lunch and supper? Instead of saying that, he looks at them and has compassion on them. They have a need. They're hungry. And Jesus intends to fulfill their need with compassion toward them. He could see that they were lost, that they were aimless, that they were souls searching and searching and searching. Sheep without a shepherd. Who's in charge? Who do we serve? Who's our God? We've heard a lot of teaching from Jerusalem. We don't know necessarily what to believe. Who do we look to? And Jesus looks at them with compassion and intends to serve them. And then in the midst of this, he places this test squarely on the shoulders of his disciples and Philip in particular, how will you help them? And let me ask you, beloved, how will you help all the needy people that you see in your life? How are you gonna do it? Are we gonna come up with worldly answers like the disciples are trying to figure out? Look, there's just too many needs. The needs in the world are overwhelming if you look at it. There are so many needs in Pella that if we all worked 40 hours a week for the next three years, we wouldn't exhaust all the needs. That's just in one teeny tiny town in the middle of a state of nowhere. Imagine all the needs all over the world, beloved. Jesus looks at this and leans on Philip, the disciples, and says, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to fix it? He wants to know. He's putting them through the ringer. And he's asking us, as it were, when you look at all the needs around us, all the lost people, all the hurting people, what are you gonna to do to fix their problems? What solutions do you have? What are we gonna to do to try and figure this out? Well, I want us to just pause a minute and think about this. The Lord never asks us to do something that he doesn't do himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a big question that came out, as it were, what are you going to do, Jesus, to help these people? You're going to drink the cup? You're going to avoid it? How are you going to handle this? Because Jesus saw incredible needs. You know what the needs were? People need dying for sin by a suitable Savior who's God and man. You're the one, Jesus. These are needy people, and their needs are great. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle it? And you know what he did? 
He jumped in. He jumped in to handle all of our needs. He did it. He accomplished it because he's God and because he's man. So Jesus had this, actually came face to face with this eventually as well. What are we going to do to help all these people? I've got to go to the cross. And beloved, he did it willingly for you and me. The second thing i like us to notice is that believers are unable to satisfy this kind of hunger. So verses 4 and 5, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? In Mark 6.37, the same account, Jesus actually says, You give them something to eat. So Jesus let the disciples sweat it out until they admitted two things. They came up with two ideas. Well, we've got 200 denarii, which is about eight months worth of wages. So if you do the math in today's math, just for fun figuring, you might, you might have like $1.50 to $2 per person to feed everybody. If you had eight months worth of wages, let's say you're figuring a $60,000 a year job or a $50,000 a year job, do the math divided by 20,000 people, you're gonna feed a crowd with two bucks a person. I don't know of any restaurant you could walk into and say, we're gonna make everybody filled to the brim on two bucks a person. It just wouldn't work. And we've also got five barley loaves and two pickled fish because one boy did pack his lunch. And these barley loaves are not, like we might think of barley loaves, they're a poor person's food. So think of not like a full loaf of bread, you know, with 20 slices in it, really thick and, and incredible with all those calories. You might think, someone put it, you might think of this like a, a, a hefty pancake, each loaf. So not a lot of bread and two fishes. So they had gone through the crowd. They had tried to figure this out. They're like, our Lord just asked me to figure out how we're going to feed all of them. Let's use our conventional thinking. And here's how we're going to come up with this. So we got a little bit of money. We got a little bit of food, but they all knew it wasn't going to work. That's the conclusion. Got some loaves of bread, some fishes, a little bit of money, but what's all this when you look at 20,000 people before you? And Mark 6, verse 35, actually, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples' best plan was, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. You got to send them away. Let them go home. Let them, let them go into the countryside. Now, in Springfield, Missouri, this may have worked. Where Rochelle and I lived before, I think the, the, the city is actually known for its restaurants in number, sheer size. Uh, almost everybody eats out uh, every night. And I think there, there's, there's definitely people down there that are eating out all three meals of every single day. I think there's 800 restaurants about, give or take a few, in a town of, I think it's 150,000 people. So it, the, the, the mantra is, if you can start a restaurant, make it go and be profitable in Springfield, you can do it anywhere. But there's such a demand, but there's so much competition. So if you sent 20,000 people into Springfield, that'd be like 25 people in a restaurant, they could pull it off easily. But this is an agrarian society. society. This is a desolate place. Most people eat at home the food that they produce themselves. And marketplaces are filled with people who are going to have enough on hand to stock the daily need. So nobody is thinking, hey, there's going to be 20,000 people showing up. I better butcher a lot more cows and a lot more uh, animals to fill this need. And nobody would have that kind of food in stock. So even the disciples saying, send them home, send them away, send them to the marketplaces, send them into all the towns, let them go eat. That still wouldn't have worked because 20,000 people would show up and it'd be like, it'd be like a McDonald's drive-through lane that's 20 miles long. Like this isn't going to work. 
we can't feed all of these people. So the needs of others, beloved, is often a test from the Lord whereby he's causing us to think about our own limits, what we have at our disposal to help them, and just how far we can go with this. And it teaches us to look to him. The disciples hadn't yet. One of them didn't say, look, Lord, just that's too much of a to-do list. You can do it. We can't. Instead, they go at this with all their conventional wisdom, trying to figure out the best course of action to feed all these people. And they came up with nothing. Beloved, it is possible to go through our life serving other people with only our small conventional wisdom, trying to do things our way and doing it without the Lord and looking to Him and relying on Him and praying to Him and trusting in Him. It's very possible to do that. Um, the crowd is massive. You got 40,000 eyes staring back at you. Beloved, some of us, as we go through life, we're going to have situations where we think there are 40,000 eyes staring back at me right now, asking, what are you going to do about this? And we can either try and figure this out on our own strength, which is a test from the Lord. Well, is that what they're going to do? Or before we even start, we can say, Lord, this is just beyond me. I don't have enough resources. I can't do this by myself. I can't do it, period. So what do you want me to do? How can I navigate this? You have to work, Lord. Work through me, work without me. Just you have to work, Lord, in order for this uh, to happen. Uh, the Lord does not select strong people so that he can use their strengths. He selects weak, ordinary people so that his power will be magnified in their weakness. The Apostle Paul had seen visions. He'd been caught up to the third heaven. He'd seen things that he can't even verbalize. Ezekiel saw a lot of the same stuff. And you can argue when he says, I saw what looked like, I saw what looked like, that he was going, going nuts. Mentally couldn't wrap his mind around what he had seen in heaven. Beloved, Paul comes down from that. And God said, here's a thorn. Because if you go in strength, you're not going to advance my kingdom, you're going to advance yours. So I'm going to give you a weakness. I'm going to put it in you. So that when you go around, everybody will know that truly your God is powerful. To be able to use a weak person like you to evangelize and spread the gospel and go through all your pain and suffering, your God has to be powerful in order for you, little you, Paul, to show up and do this work. You can barely speak. Clearly your God is powerful. Beloved God, when he uses people, he uses us in our weakness. It's one of the hardest things by nature for for believers to, to wrap our minds around. Lord, I'm feeling good, I'm really strong, but oftentimes it's we're just really full of ourselves. We're really feeling good ourselves. We're not really ready to serve the Lord well yet until we've been afflicted with some weakness and serve Him out of that weakness. So, beloved, we can do a couple things when we look at the needs around us. We can try and send people home and get them out of our lives. We can say the needs are too great. I want to avoid them. Lord, send everybody home. Don't surround me with anybody who has any needs. You take, uh, let somebody else take care of it. Or we can look to the Lord and say, Lord, you want me to do this? 
You better show me how. And it involves prayer. It involves time on our knees. It involves humility. Lord, I see the need. You've shown me the need, Lord. You've exposed it to me. Now, what do you want me to do? What does this look like? How can I best navigate this? How can I love them? How can I serve them? What do you want to do through me? And who else needs to be involved in this? And the second way is the way that we're called to be used. The first way just isn't gonna work. It can be a way to avoid things. Get rid of all the needy people, but we're called to serve, beloved. We've got a duty on our lives to serve and to help people. The third thing I want us to see is that Jesus Jesus satisfies hunger with weak means, verses 10 to 14. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the moment they realized they weren't enough, they admitted it. Jesus used them to bless others. This is just how the Lord works. So Jesus took over at this point. All right, <laughs> you guys have come up with nothing. <laughs> I think you're getting this. We've got nothing, Lord. All right, go have the people sit down. He had them sit down in groups of 50 to 100. If everyone was sitting in a group of 50, you're looking at 400 groups of 50. <laughs> Just a, a massive amount of people. And the disciples are telling everybody, look, I want you to sit down in groups of 50 or 100. Now you can imagine their angst because as one person put it, this is like calling people to the dinner table, but the disciples know there is no dinner at this point. <laughs> so they're having people sit down get together in groups thinking, I guess we're gonna eat, but there's no food. We know how much money we have. We know how much food we have. There's no way this is gonna happen. So they were likely a little bit nervous. And Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks to his father. He took the fish and did the exact same thing. And they had the disciples pass it out. And this is where the miracle begins. Who knows what this looked like? It must've been amazing. Well, they were passing it out in baskets and and, and you go one, in, the disciples hand a basket to a group and there's, you know, there's a, a quarter of a fish and a quarter of a loaf of bread and everybody pulls out tons and tons of food and they get it back and there's still a quarter of a fish and a quarter of a loaf of bread in there. They must have been just amazed. And every disciple, if they each went around to the same number of groups, would have gone to about 30 different groups of 50 people. They're just going group to group to group here. Take the food and it multiplies. The miracle is just going on. <laughs> And the 20,000 people must have been amazed and the disciples amazed. The people were amazed enough that said, this is the prophet. They wanted to make him king, so they got it. They, they looked at what was going on. How is this possible? How do you feed 20,000 people with five little loaves of bread and a couple fish? You don't, unless you're God, unless you're Jesus doing a miracle. And this shouldn't have surprised anybody because in 1 Kings 17, with Elijah, the widow of Zarephath, they said, look, your oil won't run dry. Just make me some bread. And indeed, while the drought lasted, the widow had food enough, food aplenty, and ate well. So God had done this sort of miracle before. Notice something as well. They ate until they were full. They had eaten their full. This wasn't a meager meal, but it was a meal with plenty of food, lots of food. Everyone would have said, I can't. If I eat any more, you're gonna to have to roll me home or carry me home. They had plenty to eat, they were full. They picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. 
So they ended with more than what they started with. <laughs> Again, what were the looks on people's faces as they watched the disciples pick up the leftovers with these baskets, walk back, and what was the look on the disciples' faces as they, they we started with this much, we ended with this much. <laughs> How does this work? Lord, you are amazing in this miracle. And the crowds immediately took this sign as a sign that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. In the Gospel of John, and we'll notice this in the walking of water and as we move through this chapter, in the Gospel of John, Moses is presented as rather a hero for the Jews. They loved Moses, they love what he wrote, the law, and he's sort of the hero along with Abraham, but Moses is as well. And the Jews viewed Moses as the one through whom God gave them manna, right? And now Jesus is giving them bread in a miracle. Moses went up on a mountain. That was his highlight. When he came back, his face was glowing. Everybody associated Moses with the mountain if you were a Jew. Well, now Jesus is up on a mountain. But what separates Jesus is that Moses led the Israelites while God gave them manna. But in this miracle, Jesus is up on the mountain and he multiplies the bread and the fish. He's the one giving the manna. It's not he's doing it. So it's God doing it. Clearly, this must be God in our midst. So that's why they're thinking, this is the prophet. This is the guy that Moses was talking about. The Lord's going to raise up from among your midst a prophet greater than me. Well, here he is, the one greater than Moses. They made the connection. So what do we do with this? Look, beloved, on one level, we just have to marvel at this. I don't want to destroy this by looking so much at what this has to do with us. We'll look at that a little bit, but... Just marvel, how do you feed 20,000 people? How do you turn five loaves of bread and two fishes into a meal that fills to the full 20,000 people? You can't. Marvelous that God did this. It's a miracle so profound, like I mentioned, all four gospel writers record it. 20,000 people about witnessed it. The disciples saw it. Everybody at this just, how does this happen? This is God in the flesh, beloved, performing a miracle, which is something that's extraordinary. Can't be explained with science, can't be explained by any normal means. It's God doing the impossible, impossible for us, very possible, very easy for him. It's a creative act where the Lord is bringing seemingly out of nowhere more food to feed everybody. So just marvel at our Savior who feeds the multitudes. And I want us to notice a couple things as well, that in this miracle, Jesus uses means to accomplish it. He could have decreed that everybody's bellies would be full of food. He could have decreed that everybody's hunger pains would go away. He could have done that, said it, spoke it, snapped his fingers, and it would have been done. Jesus could have created food out of nothing, not involving the disciples at all, not even using the little boy's lunch. But instead, he used means, this small amount of food and the work of his disciples and handing it out, and that's how he fed uh, the people. So without trivializing this miracle, there are some things which stand out, and I, I want to mention them. Look, there's a couple of ways where this can work itself out. Let's just talk about this, helping other people walk through difficulties in life. At some point in every one of our lives, we're going to encounter people who are undergoing difficulties 
Those people are in our lives and we're in a spot to help them. At some point in every Christian's life, this probably happens at least once, maybe for some of us dozens of times. And there's a couple ways to do it. We can say, yeah, I'm gonna help you. I got all the answers. We can figure this out all on our own. Do this and this and this and everything will be fine. And we'll discover that actually that usually doesn't work and their needs are way bigger than we're able to supply. Or we can do this saying, Lord, so-and-so has a difficulty. You've put me in their life for a reason. They've asked me for help or they need my help and I'm not quite sure how to do this because I can't change hearts. The 40,000 eyes staring at Philip saying, feed me, are equivalent to a heart that looks at us in a difficult situation and says, change me. And our response to both is, there's not a chance I can do this. But God uses means. And so we can be a means by which people's hearts are changed and lives are formed and transformed. But we're not the one accomplishing the miracle when it happens. We're not the one changing the lives. We're simply a means in the Lord's hand. And so, beloved, part of our ability to help people is just the humility of recognizing that unless the Lord works, everything we may say or do to serve somebody in a difficult situation will accomplish nothing in their life and benefit them zero unless the Lord is doing this work through us. Uh, think of evangelism. As we go out into this world, beloved, there are so many lost people here in Pella, here in Iowa, here in the United States, and all over the world. Lost people everywhere. The world is filled with people who don't know the Lord, and it is impossible for us to save them. You and I can pray, we can speak eloquently, we can write books, volumes of books on apologetics and the best ways, way one, two, three, four, five, and how to evangelize somebody. We can know all about them, etc. And we can speak all these words to somebody who's lost and we can't save them an ounce. But our approach can be either I'm gonna go out in my eloquence and in my strength and I'm gonna to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ and they're gonna believe, which will fall flat on the ground or we might actually convince them they do believe when they don't. Or we can go to the Lord and say, Lord, there's a lot of people that you've given me to reach. I see them. I've got 40,000 eyes staring at me. My neighbors, my friends, my family members, people I work with, they're looking at me and I can't save them. Their souls need to be fed, but I don't have anything to feed them with other than you. So I'm gonna go out, but you need to do this through me. It's you working. Well, there's a radical difference between the two. One says, yep, I got this. The other one says, I can't do a thing about this unless the Lord uses me. One goes out in pride and strength. The other one goes out in humility and weakness, having, having been confronted with the fact that we're just human beings and we can't change hearts. We can multiply that by a lot. I think those two ought uh, at least give us an understanding of, of how we can go out into the world and serve. I remember we had a chapel service. I think I've mentioned this once. We had a chapel service at Mid-America Reform Seminary. I went to a seminary and one of the pastors that came in had been kicked out of his church for a while. They, he wasn't eloquent enough and he was a King James only guy. He spoke in broken English, old English, but he really loved Jesus. And after they kicked him out for two or three years, they invited him to come back because they said, we're missing something. It's, we're missing love of the Lord and you brought that to us. And he sat in front of us and spoke to us in, in English that was so slow 
And you could have written a book between each word, right? And the, the sentence pauses. And it just took forever. Any New Yorker would have been like, let me pull those words out of your mouth faster. And the concepts were so simple. And every one of us left there thinking, we've heard some of the most eloquent people speak in chapels. We've heard some of the most gifted speakers deliver. But that's a message I'll never forget. And none of us could. It just seared into our brains what the guy spoke about and how he did it in pure weakness. Because all he was doing was relying on the Lord's strength and speaking, beloved, that's how we go out into this world. Jesus does the miracle. He, he does the loaves. He does the fishes. He multiplies them. We hand it out. He leans on us. How are you going to do this? How are you going to feed everybody? How are you going to meet these needs? How are you going to serve people physically to love them well? How are you going to serve them spiritually to give them the gospel? How are you going to do it? Are you going to do it by yourself? Are you going to do it in your own conventional wisdom? Or are you going to do it in my strength? Are you going to be a tool in my hand? Or are you going to play God in people's life and try and do this all on your own? The one will accomplish a lot of feeding. The other won't accomplish anything. And then finally, I want to look at uh, 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 Jesus just for a minute. In, in the final verse of the passage, in verse 15, we're told that they wanted to make him a king. You've got 5,000 men, not including the women and children. This is important. This is enough to get up a decent military force. If you have 5,000 men who want you to be a king and they take up arms, you've got a formidable military force. And you, you're in the conversation for taking some things over. Well, these people are ready to make him a king. And they're ready to exalt him, to enthrone him. And they're, they're as it were, ready to, to do whatever it takes to make him a king, which means we're your loyal subjects. We're going to follow you. We're going to fight for you. We're going to do whatever you ask us to do. And D.A. Carson mentioned the Passover feast was to Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. It was a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal. This goes some way to explaining their fervor that tried to force Jesus to become king. So this is their 4th of July celebration. They're like, yeah, hey, we're, we're the Jews. Here we go. This is, this is an incredible time. We want to make you king and ruler. And Jesus was confronted. Jesus actually was tested right here at this very moment. Would he conquer the world through military power? Would he conquer the world through might? Would he conquer the world by going around with swords and clubs? Or would he conquer the world through weakness? John 18, before Pilate, just before the cross, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And John 19, after Jesus had been flogged and mocked, Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus when he got to Calvary, didn't withdraw. They wanted to make him king here in John 6. He got away. He left. It's not time. But before Pilate, before Herod, when the, when, when, when the time when he could get away, save him a lot of suffering, he didn't leave at that moment. The first time he withdrew because they wanted to exalt him. The second time he didn't walk away because they wanted to crucify him. And he knew that's what he came to do. You want to make me a political king? I'm out. 
You want to put me on the cross? I'm in. Because that's the kind of king I am. Beloved, we serve a king who became weak. He incarnated into this world. He lived a life of, of, of weakness, of meagerness, of meekness. Had a cloak on his back. Didn't have a retirement account. Didn't have anywhere to lay his head. Birds have a place to call home. Foxes have holes. Me, I got nothing, Jesus would say. He goes to the cross. There's no inheritance to divvy up. They just got a cloak to cast lots for. That's all he's got. He comes down in that kind of weakness with all that power, God Almighty in the flesh, all that power, and doesn't use a bit of it unless it brings him to the cross. And he did this for you and me. And if he doesn't do that, and his pride gets in the way, you and me go to hell forever. He did that for every believer. And now he looks at you and me and says, now you go out into this world, but don't get your pride mixed up into advancing my kingdom. Go out into this world in weakness. Let me work through you. But don't think that you're the one doing the miracles. Don't think that you're the one accomplishing this. Let me work through you and then get out of the way. That's what he calls us to, beloved. Let's pray.